0: This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what
1: you've built. Let's get started.
0: Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Tax Tuesday. My name is Elliot Thomas. I'm the manager of the tax advisors here at Anderson, filling in for Mr. Toby Mathis, who is away right now. And I'm joined by our CPA extraordinaire, Kurt Bergford. Say hello, Kurt. Hey, everybody. How's it going today? (laughs) And we're excited to bring you, uh, as we call it, bringing the tax knowledge to the masses. And this is our free program to all the clients here who want to come in. You can submit your questions throughout the week. We'll give you some information on how to do so. We pick them. These are your questions. We're trying to help you out with some of them here, uh, free of charge, like I said. And uh, this is our 198th episode here on July 18th, uh, 2023. So we're getting really close to that 200 mark. Hopefully, uh, we'll have Toby back for that. Maybe have some... Some special questions or something, who knows what he'll be doing. Anyway, some rules we have here. First of all, all uh, you can ask your questions through the Q&A section. We have the chat section, the Q&A. Please, if you have questions related to some of the topics, tax topics, please put them through the Q&A, question and answer. And we have quite a staff in the background helping out. Uh, we got uh, Dana handling on our YouTube. We got Dutch, one of our CPAs in tax prep. We got Trisha handling some bookkeeping. So we have a whole team back there. Please be patient because we get a lot of questions during this, typically anywhere from 100 to 200. So they're back there feverishly trying to answer as many of your questions as we can. But please do so again through the Q&A section. The chat section is more just for really anything else. If you just want to put uh, something Toby always likes to ask, you just want to put where you're all from. Uh, if you want to throw that through the, the chat section. Next, we have uh, as far as the, the detailed responses, the type of responses that we get through this. You may need something more the way of a tax consultation or tax planning session. So we are just giving general answers here. Uh, They're not meant to be full rounded or in depth by any means, but just trying to assist and give a little bit of guidance or something on a particular tax topic. So uh, you may need to have a, a tax package, a tax consultation, tax planning, or something of that nature, but hopefully we'll be able to answer what we can for you here today. And uh, it's just an idea to have some fun, fast uh, education on tax and uh, we try and bring that every two weeks to you. And I'm just going to go through the questions here real quick and just go ahead and before we get there, uh, just remember, a reminder to go to Toby's YouTube channel. He's got a lot of videos, uh, well over 500 now, have a lot of different topics. Kurt, I think just cut a video the other day. Did you not, Kurt?
1: Yeah, indeed. It uh, should be coming out pretty soon, hopefully.
0: Any idea, remember what the topics were by chance?
1: Uh, short-term rentals. So, there you go. A lot of great lot benefits of- with those uh, short-term rentals. So watch out, uh, keep an eye for that uh, YouTube channel, and uh hope you'll see that video coming out real soon.
0: And I don't think we have a thing on here, but we do have a Vegas event coming up, live attacks and asset protection. What is it? The Approximately the 14th of September here in Vegas. And uh, you might be there too. Was that right, Kurt? Uh,
1: yep, yeah, indeed. Yep.
0: So maybe people can, you can sign some autographs in 1040s for the people.
1: Yeah, Why? exactly. Right. There you, right go. you. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Carrying on. So again, uh, Anderson YouTube, you can subscribe on YouTube at the aba.link forward slash YouTube. You can get some replays of all this, all those episodes. Again, this was number 198. So we got quite a few in there and we'll kick it off right away with the questions. So Kurt, our first question of the day, are there any tax implications for wholesaling and tax liens? Any thoughts on that?
1: This is a really good question. You know, not everyone is involved in either wholesaling or tax liens. So let's just kind of talk about um, what those items actually are. What is a tax lien? A lot of people might, might not be aware, but um, what what essentially happens with a tax lien is a property owner, uh, maybe a homeowner, hasn't been able to pay their property taxes, actually falls behind on. Um, Those property taxes and the local government, um, you know, all local governments need money to keep, you know, all the vital services going. They need that cash to operate, you know, the county, the city, whatever it happens to be. And, uh, you know, a tax lien will arise is the government will actually put a lien on that person's property and then go out and sell that to outside investors. So, if you're into real estate investing, you know this might be another avenue for you to get more into. Usually, it's a, an auction process or a bidding process. Usually, you can go down to your local property assessor and figure out where these auctions will take place, things along those lines. And you can actually bid on something like a tax lien, which essentially is like a debt instrument on the unpaid property taxes of that. So say the property tax owner or I'm sorry, the property owner has the property. That they owe ten thousand dollars, for example. You can invest that, pay the undue property taxes or overdue property taxes, and then you own a tax. What's called a tax lien certificate, meaning that essentially you have a more or less a lien on that property. And until that is paid off, the property owner might not be able to sell or negotiate that property to some other party in a sale. So how does this play in when it comes to investing? Well, typically, there could be a couple scenarios where this happens. One scenario might be they actually end up paying the taxes back. Usually, that each certificate will come with a stated interest rate. Various states have different rules on this. Maximum interest rates, minimum interest rates, things along those lines. But you will be entitled to receive your amount of investment back and also a stated amount of interest. So that is usually one scenario, and that that interest is usually going to be taxable to you if the property owner decides to pay for that. Another type of scenario is when you actually make an investment in a tax lien, and the property owner becomes further delinquent. You know, you go into foreclosure, you actually get access to the home, and what are you going to do with that home if if they're delinquent, they don't pay that. Essentially, you, you've got this this home you might have you know owned now, and you're going to have to go out and either, you know what, what, what you want to be aware of in that scenario is what are you actually going to do with the property? If you looking at the, the property, you know it looks like in a good area, maybe you'd make a great rental, you know that's one thing. Maybe you're, you might just be looking to flip that. So when you're investing, either you know wholesaling or taxing investing. You want to be kind of aware of ahead of time, maybe what your ultimate intent with the property is and what you're going to do with it. so and and we might structure you know based on your intent of what you're going to do with those a little differently. Sometimes, if you're probably planning on flipping, you know often wholesaling is is kind of a flipping activity, wholesaling. We might uh, buy those uh, tax liens or do the, that wholesale investing through a corporation because it is an ordinary income to you. Um, if you just did it in your own name, you might generate self-employment tax, which might not be the best. So maybe we do that instead in a corporation. But in, in another situation, say you were investing in tax liens and you might hold the property out for rental instead of just flipping it. In that case, maybe just you know wrapping that, uh, that tax lien certificate investment in an LLC you know disregarded to you instead of maybe your corporation that you use for the rest of your flips or wholesaling with that kind of possibility that uh, you know you might end up actually holding it out as a, as a rental because again we you know something you probably hear a lot of is we almost never want to put appreciable rental properties directly into corporations we're going to flip or doing something where we're going to kind of have it for a little bit of period of time and then turn it over sell it Um, Any kind of flipping wholesaling, that's your kind of intent going in, maybe hold it in the court directly. But if you're kind of on the fence, you know, you might rent it, you might eventually flip it. You don't really know though, maybe just uh, end up buying in your own name or an LLC that's disregarded to you.
0: All right. Excellent. Yeah. So just kind of recap and help me out here, Kurt. So if we, we do these things, wholesaling tax liens, we very well might be going along active income where we probably, as you're just noting, want to do that under a C-corporation type arrangement. Often we have LLCs disregard the C-corp, but we all know, or we know, Kurt and I know, that's all going to go on that same corporate return. So you, we we like to use our active income vehicle, the C-corp for that, possibly a, an S-corp, but usually a C-corp. And uh, we have a lot of benefits with that C-corporation, don't we, to work with? Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So I mean, right off the top, you know, especially if you're a high income earner, the C-corp doing these kind of flipping, wholesaling, active tax lien investing activities, again, they're most likely going to be an active business. So if you do that out of the C-Corp, you might benefit from the low corporate tax rate, which is only 21%. Maybe you have a high W-2, you're already in the 37% tax bracket. You also don't want to add uh, self-employment taxes. If you were to do that in your own personal name, and um, when you do it with a corp instead, you might get some of those additional benefits, like having the accountable plan for all your business expenses, have all that stuff reimbursed, You know, health reimbursement, all out-of-pocket medical, dental, medical, vision, all those things. With a C-Corp for you, your spouse and your family can be reimbursed to the corporation or from the corporation to you, and it would become a deduction for the corporation. Other things like 280A meetings for the corporation, you know, you're really whittling down the profit for tax purposes. That you'd see, you know, with these active businesses, you know, wholesaling, flipping, tax lien investing, things along those lines. So the C corp can be a tremendously beneficial vehicle to minimize your taxes in that in in those
0: circumstances. And if we had some extra cash, could even pay ourselves a wage, maybe set up a solo 401k. Now we're talking retirement plans as well. On top of everything Kurt was just talking about, so a lot of opportunities there. But again, we're talking about active income there with the wholesaling, certainly, and the tax lien, just depending on how you want to use that house. Should you end up with it? Now, Kurt, if we're not so certain, you know, we may get this tax lien. This tax lien vehicle might turn into us uh, holding onto a house. And if we're not really sure that we know that we want to do it as a flip, well, then maybe we're probably better leaving it outside of the C corp until we know exactly. Because we always talk about trying to get that appreciable property out of a corporation creates some problems, does it not?
1: Yeah, and uh, the example I, I I like to use with properties and corporations is kind of like a imagine a seashell. you know you can go into a seashell very easily. It's not so easy to come back out. Same thing with corporations. Properties can easily be contributed into corporations, you know, no tax consequence almost always. go very easily in. The problem is when it's time to take them back out, that can cause additional tax complications. And that's why if you don't really know what you're going to do with the property uh, ahead of time, oftentimes it would just be good to set up an LLC that's not really connected to your corporation. It's just a disregarded uh, LLC to you personally. And with a disregarded LLC, you can move that, you know, you can pretty much do whatever you want with it, bring it out, put it back in. Things along those lines without worrying about an income tax consideration, not so much with a corpse. So if you're kind of on the fence, maybe it's going to be a flip, maybe it's going to be a rental. It's probably better to keep that in just a disregarded LLC.
0: Very good. All right. Thank you. All right. Moving on to question number two. All right. When I pass on and leave some assets to my children, will my children be subject to income tax for the year in which they receive the assets from me, even though the assets don't Reach the then taxable inheritance threshold. So, Kurt, we pass away. We're leaving some assets to our children. Are they going to have to pay some income tax? You know, if we don't meet that threshold that that we're given for the the uh, gift tax and inheritance tax.
1: Yeah. So, right now, the estate exemption for a married couple is about twenty five thousand, or I'm sorry, twenty five million dollars. So, if your total taxable estate is less than that. Most likely, there will be no inheritance or estate taxes associated with those assets that you do pass on to your heirs. So that's great news for a large amount of investors who have estates smaller than that. However, when you do pass your properties, say you have, uh, you know, you have some assets or some properties uh, that you're going to leave to your children usually when you pass them via inheritance, as opposed to a gift during your lifetime, when you pass them via inheritance, they will benefit from that, what is called a stepped up in tax basis. So when you and your spouse finally pass away, say you have a rental property that was purchased you know, 10, 15 years ago for $100,000, usually the, the tax basis would be $100,000 minus any depreciation you've taken on that rental property, um, but say the fair market value at the time of your passing was three or $400,000. So if you give, the, give this property to them as an inheritance and pass it to them as you know, when you pass, the tax basis will actually step up to the fair market value on the date of your passing. And if they sell those properties without further appreciation in the year that they inherit those, there should be very little gain or capital gain associated with that time because, you know, say the fair market value in the year of passing is 400, 400, 400,000 and they've received a stepped up in basis to 400,000, there should be almost zero capital gain on, on those assets. And um, pretty much all assets that I'm aware of, um, you know, whether it's real estate, stocks, bonds, similar items like that, will receive a stepped- up- in basis on inheritance. Now, take that, and, and you know maybe some of you have considered giving stocks, bonds, rental properties to your children before you pass. Now that's a little bit of a different circumstance because when you give it to a your children during their lifetime, they will actually inherit your tax basis, so which could be sub- substantially lower. So you might be in a situation where you actually don't, you know, they if they were to sell those once you give them, you know, once you get those those properties during your lifetime, you might have uh, you know unintended consequences. So if your plan is ultimately to always give your assets to your children. Oftentimes, it's better to wait um, and let them inherit those properties when you pass, as opposed to gifting those properties during your lifetime.
0: Excellent. All right. So a real distinction there between receiving a gift while we're alive, giving a gift and receiving at that lower basis versus inheriting where you get that stepped up basis. Big big difference from a tax perspective. Uh, one thing I just wanted to point out on this question now, we're going to real, get real technical on the words here, income tax. Uh, you know, usually we think of income tax coming from a business or something like that. There generally wouldn't be any of that. Uh, you know, when you receive, until you receive the children receive the the asset, if it starts making money at that point, once they have ownership, if you have any actual productive income coming from it from that point forward, they would might have a little bit of tax. But your 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 gift tax, your inheritance tax, is what Kurt's referring to, and those things. Uh, those are the the taxes you really have to worry about, not so much an income tax necessarily different type of tax and that does have that exclusion of almost 25 million approximately, give or take. Uh, that can certainly write off a lot of potential tax loss right there uh, with that with that uh, exclusion. All right, thank you so much. Getting on to question number three. I own investment slash rental properties in two states. What travel deductions are permissible when traveling between properties to work, such as air, meals, rental cars, etc.? Are there any limitations or restrictions So, we got some travel going on, Kurt. We got some properties that are outside of our locale where we live. What can I deduct?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, you're out traveling for work. You know, maybe you have a trip planned somewhere for business. Definitely going to incur some costs for travel, um, lodging, meals, things along those lines. You know, so we want to figure out what exactly we can deduct, what we can't deduct. So the IRS would say as long as your trip overall is predominantly for business, meaning over 50% for business, all the travel costs associated with it would be 100% deductible. So how do we determine if a trip is predominantly for business or not? We're looking at the number of business days compared to the number of non-business days. So usually travel days will consider will be considered business days. Days that you're with clients, meeting with clients, you know, looking over investments, doing similar business activities, um, those are going to be considered business days. And the golden rule is: any business, any day that you spend over four hours and one minute in, you know, in that period of time on business, is going to be considered a business day. So, not a tremendously high threshold. You know, you can you can do some business in in one city, you know. For most of the day, have the rest of the day to kind of um, you know relax, recoup, and that's still going to count as a business day. So when we look at your lodging or or like your your, your travel expenses, say you flew by air, if over if your entire trip when you kind of base you know do the calculation on how many business versus personal days, it's over fifty percent, then you're looking any transportation, any airfare, mm-hmm. rental, train, whatever it might be. Is going to be one hundred percent deductible. When it comes to things like meals and lodging, kind of similar rules apply, except that um, you know, for lodging, you would be able to deduct the days that you actually were, were doing business. And same thing with meals. If if you're doing meals and and, and uh, you're doing meals and lodging on any particular day, you're doing business, usually going to be deductible. On those personal days that, uh, you know, maybe you're just taking a break or taking uh, a couple days at the end of the week to um, not conduct business, generally those would not be deductible. So that's generally how the rules work in uh, those circumstances.
0: Any thoughts on what happens if we bring a spouse along or we bring the kids, things like that? How's that? Can that play into it or is it just a no-go?
1: Yeah. So oftentimes a lot of clients have, they employ their spouses in their businesses Employ their kids in their businesses. You know, if there's a you know a, a business reason or business justification, meaning you need the, the employees there for you know help conducting you know the business meetings or uh, the business purpose behind the trip, that should be no problem. You can uh, you can deduct the cost of of their travel, um, their lodging, and uh, you know their meals, just like you would yourself.
0: All right, going to Disneyland, huh? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Now, uh, a little bit different, though, if we're going international, if you go international, they kind of step up the game here, the IRS does, and there we're typically looking at over 75% of the days have to be business days, as Kurt was pointing out, here in the U.S., it's over 54 hours in a minute, that makes a business day, we want over 50% of our days here in the U.S., but if we're going overseas, we're going to go... To Europe, which is really hot right now, from what I hear, um, it's you're looking at 75 percent of your days have to be business, so it's a little bit higher standard there. I think we can understand why the IRS is a little more skeptical. There is a special rule if you can really prove it's seven days or less that the majority of it, which may be your four days in a week, uh, that was business, uh, then uh, you typically can get the deduction. There was a kind of a big case where a guy used a, a trip to Ireland and used all the the bars to meet with uh, business people and was able to survive audit on it. So a little bit of a different thing overseas if you're less than a week, but usually 75% uh, of the days have to be business. But here back in the US, over 50%. All right. Excellent. Next question. Uh, We have real estate properties that we want to start unloading. We're getting to the point where we do not want to be landlords anymore. Can't imagine why. When we do that, we want to invest in the proceeds to another investment that we can get cash flow to sustain our living, but most likely not be uh, being the being the landlords again. So they don't want to have all that control there, all the responsibility, Kurt. But they still want to have some flow of income. Uh, what tax options? What options do they have tax wise? Is it better to sell and pay taxes on capital gain in one lump sum, or are there other routes they can take? If we are to sell one property per year, it would take them eight years. So we're looking at a lot of properties. We've got eight properties. We're trying to slowly get out of it, or maybe quickly. What do you got for us, Kurt? Any ideas? Uh, yeah.
1: So, you know, obviously, you always want to calculate, make sure you know potentially what the capital gains would be in any circumstance. So you have a an idea, you know, do you want to pay the capital gains? Do you want to defer the capital gains? Do you want to eventually, you know, not pay taxes at all? There might be a couple different strategies depending on your circumstance, but, uh you know, there's a couple things that we were talking about. Um, situations, uh, what's called an upreit, you know, is which is kind of like uh, essentially involves. Usually, it's kind of like a ten thirty one, um, but it would actually involve you using a seven twenty one exchange, which can actually you can turn your rental properties um, in kind of a and a mechanism in a, in a relatively complicated transaction into units of a real and real estate investment trust. And what this is going to do is one, it's going to diversify your investments. It's going to prevent you from being the landlord anymore, because these are usually you're kind of transforming your real estate investments into other real estate investments that are kind of managed by professional managers. Another benefit is more stable cash flow. You're not going to be involved day to day and it uh, can be a, a great way to systematically diversify out of your current real estate holdings into more stable, hands-off investments that uh, will provide you cash flow for you know years to come.
0: Very good option there, and uh, yeah, the upreit, the benefit of uh, some of the benefits there, as Kurt was pointing out, is you just basically take your property, get an exchange of ownership, in in a partnership, and that's what the UP part stands for, an UPREAT umbrella partnership, real estate investment trust. A little bit more liquid too than some other options that might be out there, because you can typically sell those units, uh, and, and, and usually there's an open exchange form, or uh, the overall general partner of that UPREAT happens to be usually a C-Corp with publicly traded sh- uh, common stock. Even if it's not commonly traded uh, publicly traded stock, it's still usually a pretty good open market for it. So the point being, you can exchange your units for that stock, uh, which would be a taxable event at that point. But if you needed cash, you can get the cash at that moment or you could sell your units. Or if they happen to sell the property in the eat, then you would be responsible for taxes at that time. They generally don't do that. And another great point that Kurt brought out is that the diversification. There's a lot of people who've invested in this, a lot of different types of real estate. Maybe you had single family rentals while someone else brought commercial real estate into it. So you got a whole now... Uh, vast inventory of different types of real estate investment, a little more security in that, you know, you're not just in one sector or something like that, or indeed in just one geographical area. So a lot of upsides to the upper eight, no pun intended. Uh so it might be a good option for you. There might be some other options. Any thoughts about maybe doing an installment sell or anything like that to try and curb some of the tax here on on this, Kurt?
1: Yeah, certainly. You know, if you're talking about over eight years, kind of figuring out what the gain would be before you go and in- Into a transaction, but using an installment sale to potentially, you know, say you have a hundred thousand dollar gain that you're sitting on on one of your properties. If you kind of sell it on an installment basis, have a a contract with the seller to receive payments over a period of time, say 10 years, you can actually that capital gain can be spread out over a period of years, say 10 years, and you'll kind of just. or have capital gain income over a period of years as you receive payments. And and usually, if you can kind of keep your capital gains smaller in any given year, you might be able to spread out the effects of that capital gain so you don't get kind of ramped up into higher tax brackets in any given year. You can kind of manage or massage your tax bracket in those years that you receive payment and uh, ultimately smooth your, your tax liability. So installment sales are are also a very great alternative to just straight selling.
0: And it, it just is always the truth. As we hear from Toby, and as Kurt's point out, you got to calculate, calculate, calculate. You may fall in a situation where you could be, because if we're talking capital gains, and you had nothing else going on on that 1040 of yours, you might be looking at 0% tax bracket for capital gains if you're under a certain threshold. So Certainly something to, uh, a lot of opportunities, so hopefully that will help our client out here on some some options. All right, moving on to the next question. I need to implement an Accountable Plan for my S Corp. And my question is, what is the right way to deduct my personal residency expenses, such as mortgage interest, uh, mortgage insurance, real estate taxes, homeowner's insurance, depreciation, so on and so forth? How do I do that through an Accountable Plan? As an employee of my corporation, Or do I do that tax time on my personal return? What's the best route to go? So I'm trying to get that accountable plan. You keep hearing, you know, Kurt, you're talking about it all the time. Can you explain to them how do they use the accountable plan for that administrative office?
1: Yeah, so uh, the accountable plan is usually set up with the corporation. The corporation makes a declaration. Do you have an accountable plan for all its employees? And um, one of the big things with the accountable plan is what's called an administrative use of home. That is essentially the corporation is relying on you as the employee to have a place at in your home that you can conduct corporate business out of, and it's for the benefit of the corporation. So you know maybe you have a spot in your home, pretty much used for the business of the corporation, exclusive use, continuous, regular, exclusive use. Um, you know it's not necessarily your living room or something. It's a a separate dedicated space in your home that you exclusively use for the business related to the corporation. So, in that circumstance, you know, we're looking to, hey, like, what are my total expenses with the home? You know, I have mortgage interest, I have mortgage insurance, real estate taxes, homeowners insurance, depreciation, all those types of things with the regular, you know, home. Um, how much of that is applicable to this, this home office? And then we're kind of looking to take a a proration, some kind of um, allocation based on usually either based on square footage of the home office compared to the entire home or based on, um, you know, that room compared to the number of rooms. You know, so there's a couple ways to calculate it. You can actually use the one that's more advantageous for you, either the square footage method or the number of rooms method. And uh, and and go through there, and and all those expenses, you know, the mortgage interest, the insurance, real estate taxes, even depreciation. You know, you'll get some kind of calculation for that. Um, I believe we have a great template actually here that will actually help you walk through that. You know, go line by line item, help you calculate it all out, and then at that point you'll know the actual reimbursable cost for the administrative use of home that you're entitled to. And, uh, you know, what's important is uh, that we're submitting that to the corporation um, regularly. You know, I, I often tell people, you know, if, if you can do it once a month, kind of get get in the process of submitting those reimbursements to the corporation You know, documenting those expenses that you're paying for pocket out of pocket personally as an employee of the corporation and submitting those to the corporation for reimbursement. And what's important to note is, well, you can submit those for reimbursement. You know, we should be kind of submitting those pretty timely um, during the year. You know, this is not necessarily something that's done when you do that corporate tax return. You're going to be submitting the reimbursements throughout the year. To the corporation and then the corporation has has time to decide when they want to actually pay that reimbursement back to you but uh, you know what's what's a common thing and a common question we get is if the corporation doesn't pay that deduction by the end of the corporate's tax year, will the corporation actually be able to deduct it? and the answer in in that circumstance is actually no if it pays it after year end you know meaning it reimburses you for all those expenses after year end it will go on, it'll fall on the next year's corporate tax return. So we want to make sure that those reimbursements are paid before the end of the corporate year. You might wonder, hey, well, you know, maybe this year my corporation hasn't actually made a lot of money. There's not a lot of cash in the corporation to pay those expenses. That is understandable, you know. Um, But the thing is, a lot of these expenses are kind of dependent on the corporation actually paying it as a cash basis. taxpayer. The corporation only get a deduction when it actually pays those reimbursements back to you. So um, you might be in a situation where either you make a loan to the corporation or you actually contribute cash to the corporation so that the corporation can take that cash and actually pay you the reimbursement back and actually get the deduction.
0: Very good. All right. So just to kind of recap on that, you know, you can start out by taking the square footage of the office Usually, we divide by square footage of the house. Now, you might be able to improve on that. You get a percentage there. We can improve on that percentage by maybe excluding square footage for areas that are what we call uninhabitable or unusable, such as restrooms, hallways, and stairs. So we can add that. You know, let's say we have a 1,000-square-foot a a home. We take the square footage of restrooms, hallways, and stairs, and let's say that's 100 square feet. Subtract that out. That would leave us with 900, and then our if our office was on a 90 square feet, then 90 divided by 900, that'd be 10% of the area. So you get a little bit higher percentage use there. Uh, so you can improve on that. And then take it times all these expenses that our, our are questionnaire, our questionnaire asked here with the mortgage interest, insurance, real estate taxes, such and such, uh, homeowners uh, association fees, anything having to do with running that house, uh, pretty much utilities, so on and so forth, and that depreciation component all to their their benefit and then just get that reimbursement. As Kurt's pointing out, it's so critical that you actually have a cash transaction, which means do it at the end of the month. Fill out your form. We got Toby's uh, cheat sheet calculator is the is the spreadsheet that Kurt was referring to. We have that all over the place. Just ask, and we can get you a copy of it. You turn that in every month. S Corporation writes you a check for it. That's a cash transaction. That's your money tax free. And now we can put it on their turn. But we don't want to wait till next year tax time. It's too late. We got a December 31st year in. And so we got to get it all in before then so that we can get it on the return for that particular year. If you don't have the money, you can put it in as a shareholder and uh, put cash in there because you're going to get it right back with the reimbursement. So a lot of opportunity on this one. Thank you, Kurt. Good, good job. All right. Next, I own a single member disregard LLC, which in turn owns a rental property. The rental property provides me with tax dedu- uh, tax deduction mainly because of depreciation. If I were to take the property out of the LLC as an owner draw or distribution, would I be liable for any capital gains tax or depreciation recapture? So I got my rental property in, in an Anderson disregarded LLC that's disregarded to me. Kurt, I want to take it out. Am I going to suffer any consequences tax-wise for that?
1: Yeah. So in that circumstance, you know, you want to look at did actually a taxable sale or a taxable transaction occur? And in this circumstance, you just pulling it out of an LLC that you that you own that is disregarded to you is not really considered a sale for the IRS purposes. So you're just essentially taking a distribution out. You're pulling the asset out. It shouldn't produce any capital gain or any any income tax effects, at least for federal and state income tax purposes. However, what you want to be kind of careful sometimes is certain types of other state and local taxes that you might get hit with, you know, transfer taxes, you know, different kinds of state, local taxes that would be applicable to moving a property out of an LLC. One particular example that, uh, you know, I can think of is Pennsylvania, you know, transferring a property out of an LLC you know, is going to get hit by a transfer tax. So you got to kind of make sure, you know, where the property is, what kind of LLC it is, what state you're actually dealing with, and kind of just watch for that. But really, for an income tax purposes, you know, you can, you can take it out, you can put it back in, no tax consequences on that.
0: Excellent. If you ever have any questions, clients, about how to actually do that, what needs to be done... We have our whole attorney staff, and Kurt is amongst all of our attorneys. The majority of them, they're at our Utah office, so I'm sure he could direct you to one or two, I would think. Mm-hmm. I th- oh, yeah. <laughs> I, every time I talk to Kurt, I can hear an attorney coming in, asking him questions, because uh, he's got all the tax knowledge there. Uh, so, uh, But we, we de- definitely want to help out our our attorneys with the tax issues. So Kurt's a, a good sport to handle that. But yeah, when we have a disregard LC, there isn't any tax consequence from uh, income tax consequence, uh, certainly at the federal level and typically not at the state, other than those uh, property transfer taxes or something like that, that Kurt was pointing out. Uh, that is the one sometimes that sneaks by. We don't, we don't expect to hear about the, the transfer tax because we're so concerned with the other taxes, but uh, we want to look out for that one to be sure. Next. When you pay your kids under the strategies that we often talk about here, may that payment come from your personal bank account. So I'm trying to pay the children, Kurt, get them some, some money shifted over there. Uh, can I do it for my personal account? I, I, I'm I'm thinking there's probably a, dep- it depends coming up here.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a very good depends. In very limited circumstances, say you weren't using, say you had a business, but you weren't using an LLC or a corporation an LLC taxed as a corporation or an LLC taxed as a partnership, you were just simply in business in your own name as a sole proprietor. You really don't have a separate bank account for business. You could, in theory, pay your kids out of your personal account. Would we ever really recommend this kind of strategy? Most likely not. You're muddying personal expenses, personal incomes with business incomes, business deductions, all out of your personal bank account. And I think it's just um, not going to end up in the best situation. So, usually, any kind of business that we're going to have, you know, operating, you know, any kind of operating business that you have, you're going to be wanting to operate out of some type of entity, whether it's an LLC, corporation, partnership, whatever. And all those entities should have their own bank accounts. So, in most circumstances, there's almost never it's never advisable to pay your kids business expenses out of your personal account always use the business uh, business bank account
0: very good point yeah we want to really separate our personal world from our business world and, and we're kind of undoing that if we're paying any expense for that matter out of our personal bank account it just makes good business sense uh, asset protection wise i know we're here for taxes but if you're paying for your personal expenses out of a business, it could it could erode your asset protection uh, so a lot of reasons not to do it, not too many good reasons, if any, at all, to do it through your personal bank account and it does depend on how your business is taxed, what kind of lc how it's taxed, what you're gonna do there, uh, how it's gonna you're gonna go about it, but uh, that would really get into we could spend the rest of uh, the better part of a day talking about the different types of you know tax structures and and entities and how we would do something like this, but Generally speaking, stay away from that personal bank account, keep it separate from your business when you're paying your kids. Great question. And just a reminder, here it is, Tax and Asset uh, Protection Workshop. We've got some virtual events coming up here. July 20th, uh, 2023, that'll be coming up here this weekend. And July 29th, uh, 2023, both of those one-day free events come on in online only. And then we have the four-day live ticket event coming up in Las Vegas. That's, uh, I guess my date's cut off here, but I think that's, uh, I want to say it's September 14th, to the 17th approximately, live here in Vegas. You're going to see a lot of Anderson people there, a lot of clients, a lot of networking going on. They're fantastic events. Kurt and I had the pleasure of doing the Las Vegas event together. And uh, we got swamped. I think that's fair to say, yeah, Kurt? Yeah. (laughs) We had a good time. It was a lot of fun. But uh, anyway, so uh, make sure you, uh, if you can, get into town for that. And uh, you'll you'll never regret it. It's a, it's a great event. They do a wonderful job. All right, continuing on with our questions. If I use a Sidra self directed IRA to purchase short term rental property, does that qualify for me as a real estate professional? We hear that term a lot uh, for all my real estate investing activities. If I use the Sidra self directed IRA funds plus a mortgage to buy rental property, once the mortgage is paid off, is the whole property considered property of the IRA, the individual? Individual retirement account arrangement property. So, Kurt, what do we got going on here? A lot of different things here, huh?
1: Yeah. So, you know, when we kind of look at properties that are owned by any type of retirement account, uh, whether it's a, a 401k, an IRA, we want to kind of put a very clear and distinct wall between anything that might qualify for real estate professional, um, which would kind of be under your regular LLCs. Any non retirement assets and put a big wall and then anything with retirement assets on the other side. Cause if you're doing anything with the retirement, you know, that is generally not associated with anything to do with real estate professional. You can't use deductions from your rental property held by your self directed IRA towards your real estate professional, you know, on your personal return, anything like that. So it's very kind of important to put a, you know, a a big wall right between anything retirement asset related and anything non-retirement asset related. And that's kind of where this kind of question comes up. Self-directed purchase a short-term rental sounds good, but that isn't going to help you at all with your real estate professional hours. You're not going to be able to write off the losses from that uh, short-term rental that's held by the IRA against your ordinary income. So it's it's just very good to keep those those ideas very separate. And, and another thing to mention here, um, short-term rental held in an IRA, um, that might qualify as an active business. So you might have UBIT concerns, um, unrelated business income tax returns, income tax, unrelated business income tax concerns by running an active business in your retirement account. Oftentimes, that uh, you know, isn't the best idea to have active businesses in your retirement accounts, your IRAs, your solo 401ks, because of those additional heavy taxes. UBIT, unrelated business income tax, is usually a pretty heavy tax that can be levied. Oftentimes, people think of retirement accounts as tax deferred. But if you're running active businesses out of you know, using assets that are owned by your retirement account, Um, that can trigger taxes like, uh, unrelated business income tax. If you're generating business income in, in conjunction with taking on debt, other examples or other issues like, uh, unrelated debt income tax financing might arise. So it's, it's often best to keep those very separate and distinct and, and, and minimize the, the active businesses that you're, that you're conducting in your retirement accounts.
0: Very good. Uh, and sometimes also, if you get into debt on a property, you might have unrelated debt finance income. A portion of income being earned in a retirement account based on debt might uh, incur that extra tax. And that UB, it's a subset of UBIT, the unrelated business income tax that Kurt was talking about. And to give you guys just a picture of what that looks like, that, that heavy tax, think of your regular tax bracket the upper level, 37% approximately. It's just that for an individual taxpayer, it takes maybe three, four $400,000 of income to reach that level. When we're talking about UBIT, it takes all about $15,000 to get into the 37. So it's a steep rise right away. So you want to watch out for that. We like to avoid that. And that active business, short-term rental, as Kurt was pointing out, that's a, a very good indicator that you're going to run into UBIT. You might have some debt problems and real estate professional staff wouldn't have anything to do with What's going on in your investment or some of your retirement accounts? Because real estate uh, professional staffs, you're gonna have to be self-managing. You you really are responsible in overseeing your properties, or at least some of them. And that's one thing you cannot do on a retirement plan uh, you know, rental that's in a rental that's in your retirement plan. You can't manage that at all. Otherwise, uh, you could destroy your whole plan that that's uh, considered a prohibitive transaction. So a lot of uh, little warning flags on this question. So that's one reason we picked it to try and uh, set some items straight here in our minds, how we look at this. Excellent question. All right, moving on to our next one. What are the requirements to have a second home be considered a short-term rental? Will I be able to expense furnishing, furnishing costs and other expenses? Also, how does cost segregation work in this situation? So it looks like we're looking at a short-term rental. It may be a second home might be some issues, Erica. Any thoughts on how these expenses would work in that scenario?
1: Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times when we talk about short-term rentals, you know, the big kind of thing is, oh, I'm running an active business. Hey, if I'm materially participating, maybe I can write, you know, take a take a healthy loss against my other income, maybe my W2, maybe I have a high W2. I create a, a big loss on my short-term rental. I can offset, uh, you know, my W two with this big loss from the short term rental. Sounds great. However, in a situation where it's kind of a mixed use property, meaning that uh, you know it's kind of a vacation home, you know, you use it for part of the year, the other part of the year you're renting it out on a short term basis. You have to be very careful with mixed use property because it's not necessarily. The same as if you just had a short-term rental that you never used at all during the year. So you know, when when if you're going to be using any property for more than 14 days or 10 percent of the fair market uh, rental days out there, one, you have to allocate the expenses um, associated with the property between personal time and business time. And also on in that circumstance, well, you can take certain deductions like expenses for, you know, some allocation of the furnishing costs, other maintenance costs, things like along those lines, you'll be able to offset the rental income, the short-term rental income down to a point, but you actually won't be able to create a loss on the short-term rental that could carry over to your personal tax return. Your expenses in any given year with mixed-use property will be limited to the income associated with that, that uh, investment property. And that, that applies to long-term rentals as, as well as short-term rentals. So when we talk about an idea of, hey, like could you do a, a cost segregation study and you know, front-load a, a bunch of the depreciation on, on, this, um, on this short-term rental, the answer is, well, yes, you could to an extent, but how much would it actually benefit you um, is, is kind of hard to say. You can certainly zero out the rental income. You know, Say you made $10,000 of rental income in, in the second home, renting up you know, for a short-term basis. But if you already have um, expenses of, say, $9,500, for example, um, and you want to do a cost segregation study and front load a bunch of depreciation, you can only come down to zero. You can actually create a loss in any de- in any year that you use that property for over 14 days. So while you can do a cost segregation study, and you certainly can expense all the furnishings and other types of uh, you know capital expenditures, to what benefit you will actually get is is a little harder to say. So just be mindful that anytime you have mixed use property, these are kind of little traps that you should be aware of
0: very good points. That's exactly right. We want to be really careful that personal use, the greater of fourteen days or ten percent of the the days that it's number of days that it's rented at fair market rate, and that means rented to uh, unrelated parties. It's the calculation. If you use it more than that for personal use, as Kurt points out, you're going to be limited in your expenses that you can take in that year to the given rental income of that year. So the, the, any any additional expenses that you couldn't deduct, they just carry forward next year, but that's not gonna help you out probably next year either. Probably be in the same boat if you use it a lot. I mean, I personally am not a fan of ever using, mixing the personal world with our business world. So if you got a property, make it business, keep it business, don't use it personally. But obviously some people, they got the rental in an exotic location or something like that, wanna use it a little bit. Just be very careful knowing you know the the 14 days or 10% of the fair market rental days, uh, that rule, because it can really, I've seen it sting a lot of people who came to us onboarded as clients and we're looking at prior, prior years or they're trying to get their return done and they realize they can't deduct on a whole lot. Uh, we've seen that more than once. So very good points, Kurt, thank you. And I think we are down to maybe the uh, last question here. All right, I formed my two LLCs last year, but haven't funded them or used them in any way. I missed the tax return filing deadline this spring. Now what? File the returns and beg forgiveness uh, to not have to pay late fees? Close the business down, start over? So I got some LLCs set up. Not telling you anything about those LLCs, Kurt, but I will tell you that I didn't file the returns. What am I going to do?
1: Yeah. So this is a question that uh, you know we've seen before. We 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 seem to get a lot actually. And uh, you know the, the very first thing that I'm always going to ask uh, in this circumstance is hey, I have these two LLCs, LLCs can be taxed in a variety of ways. How are those LLCs taxed? Because it'll really depend on you know, the answer to your question here. Will you have late fees? Do you have to file returns? What do you need to do to kind of get back into compliance? And how those LLCs are taxed, knowing that answer will be the first step in determining what you got and what you need to do. So, you know, with an LLC, you know, there's a couple ways that it can be taxed. Usually, you know, the most basic way that an LLC could be taxed is it could be merely disregarded to you, you know, simply a disregarded entity. And in that circumstance, no activity really didn't do anything with it. You really probably don't even have to do anything. You know, you never did anything with the LLC. You didn't generate income. You didn't have losses or deductions from that probably don't even have to do anything. If if you did, usually it would just go on your personal tax return, but you know, there's no activity, probably fine, don't have to do anything. For a partnership, say an LLC was taxed as a partnership, you know, we'd look, hey, did you have any activity at all? You know, any minor expenses, any income, you had income or expenses, any activity really, we're looking to file a a, a partnership tax return for that LLC. There are penalties associated with um, the partnership tax filing, but you, you know, we, we've had pretty good success with uh, getting those abated. You know, you kind of ask for first-time forgiveness. There's a variety of ways of, of to get that first-time forgiveness for a partnership, and as long as it's not like a recurring item where you just uh, neglected to file the tax returns year over year. You know we have a pretty good you know system of uh, getting those penalties abated and kind of getting the returns filed and moving forward. A Couple other ways an LLC can be taxed. Sometimes an LLC can be actually taxed as a C corp. So in that circumstance, you know, hey, we didn't really use a C corp. Don't have any income. Don't have really any expenses. With a C corp, when it comes to not filing your taxes, if you don't actually have C corp, you don't have taxable income for the C corp often there is there, there's really no penalty associated with failing to file those returns on time because the penalty for the C corp the to file the C corp returns is actually dependent on the the profits of the C corp so if you don't have profits then you know you, you can't really calculate a penalty and all you really got to do is just you know get those returns filed per, Preferably as soon as possible to kind of keep things in in good order and just move forward. Don't really have to worry about abating penalties or anything like that. Um, you know, it can be pretty streamlined, cleaned up relatively simply. With uh, an LLC, taxes an S corp is probably the probably the final way that uh, that that we've seen these things done. Any activity at all, really, for that, you really do want to be filing tax returns. Abating the penalties on the escort becomes a little bit more challenging. So, you know, we're still going to recommend, hey, getting it cleaned up, getting it, uh, you know, getting it filed, um, getting all that stuff done as soon as possible, and, um, you know, seeing if we can abate penalties. But uh, oftentimes it's a little bit harder to abate penalties on an escort. So, those are pretty much the options you have in front of you.
0: There you go. And just remember, I can't really improve on what Kurt said there. He just nailed it. Uh, I will just say that, Again, a reminder, get your extensions out. This is one of the reasons we always recommend doing so. All kinds of things have happened. I've seen the IRS uh, website go down. I've seen our own, um, what is it, our tax preparation software have problems the day of a tax deadline. So do those extensions, whether you intend to use it or not. That could have helped us here, perhaps given us some leeway. We We wouldn't be talking about penalties, but certainly a lot of them can be abated. Just check with your tax preparer. And that's it for our questions right now. And just a, uh, real quick to the rest of our team out there. Uh, they've done well over 100, 115 questions. I know there's some left and they're trying to answer those. So, uh, we thank our staff for helping that and please be patient with them. But we got Dana and Dutch, Sergey's in there, Tanya, Tricia, everyone trying to answer your questions as best as they can, as fast as they can. So, uh, you know, just please give them a little, a little chance. And if we can't get to it, feel free to, Submitted through the online Platinum Portal. Another reminder uh, to hit uh, Toby's uh, YouTube channel. A lot of videos. Looks like, I think Kurt's probably his new video he just cut with Toby will probably be in there sometime soon. I know I'll be doing one uh, sometime soon with him. I actually filmed the same day just about as Kurt did his, but I flubbed up, so we have to recut. (laughs) And uh, we'll be doing that here in a couple weeks. Uh, But lots, well over 500 videos. And check out Clint's as well, his his, uh, YouTube site. Uh, And again, a reminder for the tax and asset workshop, protection workshop, got two virtual dates, uh, back-to-back, well, I don't think it's back-to-back weekends, but on July 20th and July 29th. And then the big four-day event live here in Las Vegas, where it's going to be a toasty about 116, 120 degrees when you come, but it's all indoors, got the AC blowing, so no problem there. And uh, hope to see you as quickly as possible. Any questions, feel free to email us at taxtuesday at andersonadvisors.com or visit us at andersonadvisors.com and get those questions in, and we'll have them here maybe in two weeks again. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast, and if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.